Greetings, welcome, bienvenidos, hola, aloha, ni hao, namaste, konnichiwa, bonjour, bonjourno, so adi karab, guten tag, jau wivi vakat bang, half a day, jai janendra, privyet, salam, shalom, peace, now, go vegan, peace how, go vegan, the only way, this is Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden, isolated, quarantined, socially distanced, curfewed, and veganized for your protection, uh, please uh, do listen at least six feet from your uh, self-surveillance device. Are these not the craziest times ever? I mean, kind of makes, it's making me and this radio show almost seem normal, right? Well, okay, not quite, but uh, crazy times. I mean, there are people around the world who are actually continuing to eat meat, dairy, fish, and eggs. The pre-pandemic diet, you know, the um, pre-pandemic, you know, you, you would think that during the pandemic people had time to contemplate to consider all aspects of their lives and uh, might one not think about consuming decomposing body parts, fecal, sprinkled, pathogen-laden, decomposing body parts and the uh, secretions and excretions of animals. How pre-pandemic that is, right? Isn't it? So... I would think that in the new pandemic era, era um, well, if you if you see meat, dairy, fish, or eggs anywhere within six feet of you, um, that's uh, that's when you make sure you, you, your mouth is covered, that you have a mask over your face. Um, now, um, that's that's what you should do. That's what you should do. Put a mask over your face. Um, I know that the masks um, don't really block the virus. The the virus particles are microscopic, and you know, so the mask doesn't block them. But the, the mask could actually block uh, hamburgers and uh, hot dogs, you know, bacon, ham. Um, you know, the things that really threaten your life. So uh, that's when... Put on the mask, okay? Um, Now, uh, who says so? Who says so about that? Um, Well, really, or maybe I should say the who says so. Uh, No, not not Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey and John Entwistle. Um, I mean, they would... I don't know, they would probably say something like, uh, Baba O'Reilly, um, which of course then sounds like, you know, a Joe Biden campaign speech. Um, the who, uh, would make more sense. They, they would say, Hey, won't get fooled again. You know, who are you? <laughs> uh, Bill Gates vaccination. We're not going to take it. Um, why am I talking about the who when I meant to be talking about the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, which would agree with me for uh, 
putting on a mask to prevent uh, meat uh, ingestion. I mean, after all, it is the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, that says processed meat, you know, like hot dogs, bacon, sausages, salami, deli meats, that WHO says processed meat causes cancer in humans, right? And uh, that WHO, the World Health Organization, says that red meat probably causes cancer. Um, so, okay, um, media, media, censoring media, anything, anything positive about red meat or processed meats um, should be censored, should be censored from uh, the media, the traditional media, social media, you know, any recipes, any recipes that include processed meat, red meat, shouldn't those be censored, uh, you know, as violating community standards, as making the community sick? Huh? There, there are lots of studies linking eating eggs to cancer, too. So you have your red meat, your processed meat, studies that link um, eggs to cancer. Then T. Colin Campbell of the China study identifies the dairy protein as the number one carcinogen to which Americans are exposed. So does it not make sense to put on a mask when within six feet of meat, dairy, fish, and eggs, and yes, fish also, with their heavy metals, high cholesterol, animal protein, animal protein is carcinogenic, so the consumption of meat, dairy, fish, and eggs kills millions of people, millions of Americans, and, uh, you know, basically deaths from the coronavirus are a mere fraction of that, so please, Please, when you are around meat, dairy, fish, and eggs, put on the mask, okay? Um, and uh, as I said, you know, there, no, there's no proof that masks actually work against or block microscopic little virus particles, but they will work in preventing you from shoving bacon and sausage and hot dogs down your throat or down your kid's throat. And, uh, by the way, hot dogs are one of the leading causes of children choking to death. The coronavirus seems to be no threat to children, but hot dogs? Who says so? Who says so? No, well, in this case, not the who. In this case, uh, I'm quoting Johns Hopkins University, um, whose, whose name is never pronounced correctly, by the uh, media, by uh, podcasters, the pseudo-journalists in the world who always say John Hopkins. You know, you know when somebody's in the know when uh, he or she says uh, Johns Hopkins, you know? It's Johns, yeah, it's like plural, like plural for toilets and customers of uh, uh, prostitutes or, I'm sorry, maybe I'm supposed to say sex workers, right? So... Uh, it, anyway, so it's Johns Hopkins Children's Center says 
Hot dogs are the number one cause of food-related choking in children under three, and a child dies every five days in the U.S. choking on food. A Centers for Disease Control study, and again, my fellow pseudo-journalists and podcasters and uh, propagandists, uh, you will sound smarter if you say centers, plural, centers, for disease control. Um, so, um, yeah, anyway, um, a, a CDC study says that uh, uh, in one year there were 17,537 incidents. Children under 14 rushed to emergency rooms in non-fatal choking incidents. 60% uh, were caused by food, and uh, I, I ask you, have, have over 17,000 children under 14 been rushed to hospitals because of coronavirus? No, we need to get our priorities straight here. And uh, just to add insult to injury, or add carcinogens to your carcinogen, add, add can more cancer to your cancer, um, as we have discussed uh, many times on this show, grilling meat further develops carcinogenic compounds. There are HCAs, heterocyclic amines, and PAHs, which are polycyclic aromatic um, hydrocarbons. Uh, they are carcinogenic. Where there's smoke, or at least where there's grilling smoke, there are HCAs and PAHs, and how aromatic is that, uh, you know, uh, and, and and I'm wondering here in Northern California, what, it, it is so aromatic, uh, wherever I go, uh, it's not that people are grilling, it's that we, we're having these wildfires lately, um, so that's what's been in the air, that's what's aromatic around here, and, uh, We've been breathing, breathing that smoke. Um, this year's uh, wildfires, it's just a regular thing, huh? So, um, I don't know. So, the, at least, you know, we, we have those wildfires just in time to get our minds off of us being, uh, uh, you know, curfewed for riots and quarantined uh, for the coronavirus. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It, wouldn't it be great if wildfires and their smoke actually choked the coronavirus, you know, choked it like a hot dog uh, or killed it? Um, but I don't know. With with our luck this year, the way things are going, I don't know. The, pri the, the virus would probably, you know, become stronger and we would become incendiary you know it, it would become a, a smoking viral fireworks you know now, now you would get infected and probably your your head explode would explode from the flames you know that uh you know it's who knows where this is all going and then you would have the who the who today would make it mandatory to walk around with your uh, your head in a bucket of water basically, and, you know, and, uh, you know, we, you know, we do it, right, you know, whatever, whatever we're told, we're good little authoritarian, authoritarian, um, 
uh, acceptance uh, people. Uh, you know, if we, if we were told to walk around with our, our bucket and a head of our head in a bucket of water because uh, the coronavirus is now flammable, uh, what would happen, right? Oh, Nancy Pelosi would, would make millions on insider trading, probably, you know, on stock in uh, scuba gear, scuba, scuba gear, scuba gear. Uh, I think it's all mind control. Is it all mind control? Um, if they want everybody walking around with his or her head in a in a bucket, we'll do it. We'll do it. Um, yeah. So if we if if they want everybody, you know, eating repulsive, decomposing animal body parts and secretions, yeah, we'll do it. Simon says. Put your head in a bucket. Um, did Simon say wear a mask? Are we all doing this, but Simon didn't say? How did Simon get his dictatorial, totalitarian decision-making power anyway? Oh, if only we stood up to Simon when we still had the ch when we still had the chance. But you know, anyway, uh, it, that's what it's going to come down to. I'm sorry. No one is allowed on the bus without a water bucket on your head. Who says so? The California Department of Water Bucket Head Department. Can't even get on the magic bus with the who. Yeah, that who. Um, well, and uh, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll allow yourself to be uh, penetrated by uh, the prick of your skin mandated by uh, Bill Gates that that's on the way any problems with uh, you know the creator of uh, Microsoft Windows operating systems over the years now <laughs> how reliable the, how often does your computer crash from Microsoft or you know Windows or Windows 10 so yeah now now get the reliability of Microsoft in a chip vaccine combination. Um, now, are you aware that HR 6666 was introduced to the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee by Representative Bobby Rush of Illinois? Um, what's the rush, Bobby? Huh? You want to get that HR 666? Six on the fast track, huh? Yeah, the name of the bill, the name of the bill, the name of the Bill Gates. Um, COVID nineteen testing, reaching, and contacting everyone act or trace T R A C E. COVID nineteen testing, reaching, and contacting. Everyone act. Everyone sounds like it, like it includes you, and it includes me, and uh, it includes uh, everyone else. Introduced May 1st, 2020. It's a, a program of uh, grant distribution. Um, well, actually, I saw a write-up on it in Natural News. Let me see if my... If my... Uh, my device would like to help me here go to natural news 
Let's check this out here. So here's the headline in Natural News. Six months before the pandemic, Bill Gates negotiated a $100 million contact tracing deal with a Democrat uh, congressman. And uh, as the story goes here, let me quote from Natural News. Four months before SARS... COV2 began infecting uh, the people of China. Bill Gates was busy negotiating a $100 billion contact tracing program to be implemented by governments and forced on all Americans. On the week of August 12th to 19th, the Gates Foundation met privately with U.S. Congressman Bobby L. Rush, of Illinois in Rwanda, East Africa. The week-long event was underwritten by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. <laughs> uh, it, it, is there evil on the planet? Huh? Um, okay, so continuing here. At the meeting, they discussed the rollout of wide-scale contact tracing and negotiated uh, which companies would get to cash in on the plan. They discussed how to contact trace all Americans, how to force them to submit to medical tests and accept vaccination passports in order to go about their lives. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were Oh, that probably should be was. Grammatical error here in the article. Um, the Bill and McGin uh, Melinda Gates Foundation were, was uh, preparing to test, track, trace, mask, isolate, and corner Americans into forced vaccinations four months before SARS-CoV-2 arrived in China and six months before Bill Gates' friends at the World Health Organization uh, declared a worldwide pandemic. Bill Gates is the number one founder, uh, is the number one funder of the World Health Organization and has been uh, parading media outlets calling for government surveillance of uh, human movement and the need for elaborate contact tracing programs to enforce it. Among these tracing efforts, Bill Gates wants to enforce medical requirements and a new normal medical police state, complete with temperature checks that serve as a foothold into uh, forced medical testing and isolation orders. This new normal also includes monitoring where people travel and who they interact with, that should be whom, um, while forcing their contacts into isolation. It all leads to the rollout of vaccination passports that will serve as permission slips to, uh, for people uh, to gather, meet, travel, and interact. Uh, corporations will be incentivized to participate or be threatened with litigation if they do not go along with 
a safe new normal. These shocking revelations were revealed on the Thomas Paine podcast by John Moynihan and Larry Doyle, uh, two undercover investigators who uh, testified in Congress in 2018 about the $2.5 billion tax evasion and fraud um, schemes uh, employed by the Clintons. Now the investigators are sounding the alarm how Bill Gates planned to contact trace Americans long before a pandemic was ever declared. Now, just nine months after the Gates Foundation met with Democrat Congressman Bobby Rush, there is a bill introduced in the Congress called H.R. 6666, the COVID-19 Testing, Tracing, and Contacting Everyone Act. The $100 billion bill was introduced by none other than Bobby L. Rush himself. The TRACE Act gives the CDC absolute power over the country and people's lives, making nasal probes, surveillance tracking, and isolation orders, among other obscene medical edicts, a requirement into the future. Uh, it should be noted that Congressman Rush is from Illinois, a state that is under strict controls put in place from Governor J.B. Pritzker. Uh, this governor has a financial stake in COVID-19 testing companies. This governor also has family connections to Microsoft and Bill Gates and has echoed Bill Gates by saying that the state will not be able to fully open until a vaccine or pharmaceutical is ready to be deployed. The medical uh, coercion in, in Illinois is very real. Illinois is currently a concentration camp where citizens restricted of their liberties are being conditioned to accept a new normal in order to prepare for tracking, tracing, medical requirements everywhere they go, uh, which will likely include coerced experimental injections by year's end. So uh, there you have it on that. Uh, is, is, is Bill Gates not like Mr. Evil? Like he's, like here's, you know, he, he's an argument against people being allowed to become billionaires, I think, right? I mean, like, he, he puts his money to no good use. I mean, here's somebody who could feed the world. Everybody in the world could have, uh, you know, rice and beans and vegetables and clean water and sanitary conditions and, uh, yeah. But what does he do? I mean, he invests, and he's part of Microsoft, um, well, Microsoft, Monsanto, Monster Santo. So Bill Gates has been involved with um, GMOs and, you know, and then uh, geoengineering of the planet and the skies and the, I mean, he's just, well, you know, he's, it's, it's often said that he's connected to uh, the eugenics movement about uh, reducing the population of the planet and, uh, yeah, seems like he's on his way. 
Seems like he's it's you know he's he's on his way. I mean, I believe that he said seven hundred thousand people uh, would be injured or killed uh, by the effects of the coronavirus. But uh, you know, so what? Right? <sighs> Pretty amazing. So, um, so he he has this uh, mandatory vaccine thing happening. And, uh, you know, with Microsoft and then, you know, you'd have the you'd have the chip implanted in your skin. And uh, some people just have, you know, too many dollars and not enough cents. Or I, maybe I guess, you know, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to do. Um, I personally I'm not taking the vaccine. Um, and uh, pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, and then oh, Bill Gates' latest venture, even on top of the vaccines now, uh, he wants to build uh, nuclear power plants. Wants to, at about a billion dollars each. You know, that's part of the new green energy program to uh, uh, augment, uh, you know, when, uh, when wind power and solar power are low, as we saw in the Michael Moore movie, Planet of the Humans, that... Uh, you know, the, the green energy movement is not all that it's cracked up to be um, in the sense that, uh, you know, you get you get cloudy days. You don't have uh, you don't have the sun, you don't have the wind and then you need fossil fuels. And so Bill Gates says, well, let's uh, when you don't have the sun and you don't have the wind, let's have more nuclear power plants. What can go wrong with them? And so they'll be about a billion dollars each. I think he's calling them natrium. Doesn't that sound nice and green? Bill Gates. Bill Gates, they love him in Africa and India with all the experimentation and on uh, his vaccines there. Look what it's done to those populations. Uh, love not in Africa and India. Bill Gates is, is, is not popular there. And now... Um, on to more nuclear power plants because he just doesn't he, he just doesn't know you know you know when you have that many billions of dollars it's like there's there could be no end to how destructive you can be how many people you can threaten and be threatened by mr evil mr evil um oh by the way coming up on today's show i should mention that ria del montana will be here um, she has a book called Eco-Patriarchy, The Origins and Nature of Hunting, and, uh, we'll, we'll be talking about, uh, uh anarchism, uh, and, uh, vegan. She's, uh, she, she considers herself a vegan anarchist primitivist, and, you know, uh, Anarchists have been getting a, a, a bad name lately, right, with the, the rioting going on. So, you know, here, may, may, maybe, you know, let, and we haven't covered that topic. In, in 19 years of doing this program, we, we haven't gotten to the uh, vegan anarchist uh, primitivist uh, subject matter yet. And uh, today's probably a good day, right? Um, uh couple more things here I think that I that might be found to be semi-notable 
Oh, KFC has announced it's temporarily dropping its finger licking good slogan from its advertising, you know, for, for public health reasons during the uh, pandemic, you know, uh, I guess there are safety concerns about uh, touching your face with your hand or, you know, the, the, touching your mouth with your hands or licking your fingers on um, you know, really, especially, I guess, after touching KFC chicken, which is, you know, a threat in itself. And uh, so until the end of the pandemic, uh, KFC will be using a new slogan temporarily, which is uh, ass wiping bad. So they're going to go from finger looking good to ass wiping bad. Um, as humans continue to struggle uh, to turn birds into poop haven't you just you have all this time in isolation in quarantine all this time of contemplation and uh haven't you considered like how how much energy how how difficult it would be how how you know what what you're doing what your body has to do to take cows and pigs and goats and lambs and turkeys and chickens and turn them into poop? It's a lot of work, huh? Congratulations, uh, if you can manage, but, you know, very often it's more like constipation and impacted colon. So, uh, that would make sense that it's, uh, KFC is, uh, ass-wiping bad. Kentucky Fried Sicken. Uh, you know, I mean, don't you think... I mean, all this time to think, you know, we, we had a shortage of toilet paper for a while. And, you know, what goes on that toilet paper when you do have it, right? Dead, squish dead animals. Squish dead, isn't that gross? Huh? Yeah. Ass wiping bad. Um, yeah, that one out over other potential new slogans, like toe-sucking disgusting. You won't believe this. I mean, if you, if you think your your shoes smell bad already, this is unbelievable. You know, this is this is part of like where I'm thinking like the world has never been crazier because uh, Crocs, Crocs, you know, has actually released KFC clogs footwear. They actually smell like chicken. How toe sucking disgusting. Can this ass-wiping bad food company get? Actually, I think uh, what they do is they attach a couple of uh, chicken-scented charms to each shoe. <laughs> oh, Pretty amazing, right? Um, and KFC oh, got in a little trouble uh, with its advertising campaign in Trinidad recently. Um, uh, for uh, Emancipation Day in Trinidad and Tobago, and a big shout out to my friends in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, good friends that I used to have there, Ken Professor Fillmore, rest in peace, a good friend, one of the top steel drum players in the world, a good friend of mine when I lived in Washington, D.C., we did so many shows together. Um, and all my other friends from Trinidad and Tobago, my roommates in, in Washington, D.C., 
Arthur and Karen, I hope you're all well, doing well. Um, so for Emancipation Day in Trinidad and Tobago, KFC released an ad to support Black Lives Matter. And so uh, what was the ad? So it showed a, uh, a chicken leg, or I guess they call it a drumstick, um, although, uh, yeah, so, so they show uh, what they call a chicken drumstick, and it's casting a shadow, and the shadow uh, becomes the shape of the black power fist. So, <laughs> can you imagine the meeting in the advertising agency when they approve this? So, <laughs> so yeah, no, no, no. So what, what we'll do, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have an ad, and, and it'll be a chicken leg, and, uh, and, and it'll be a shadow, and, and the shadow will be a black power fist. Sounds great. Let's print it. Let's get it out there. Um, and so KFC quickly apologized for the gaffe, <laughs> releasing a statement that said, at KFC Trinidad, we always strive to recognize our nation's multicultural history and makeup and to play our part in recognizing it. Our intention was to support and recognize the importance of this historically significant event. We recognize that our posts commemorating Emancipation Day drew some negative responses. Clearly, we got it wrong, and we want to unreservedly apologize for the offense caused. As a result, we are reviewing the approval process of all of our communications to avoid situations like this recurring. And the truth is, like really for emancipation, uh, it would be better if people would emancipate themselves from Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, and uh, the ultimate uh, diseases uh, that will uh, manifest themselves. So um, we have the pandemic going on. Oh, dietary supplement sales are skyrocketing during the coronavirus pandemic um, and leading the surge. Vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and elderberry, they're all uh, way up. Uh, elderberry is up. Uh, the sales are 415% uh, uh, from the previous year, so one week, uh, one year ago, one week. So, um, yeah. Uh, anyway. I, I, I just can't believe, you know, like, KFC, like, uh, how offensive, right? Um, I'm talking about chicken-smelling chicken footwear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, what could be more offensive than uh, KFC, huh? Perhaps it's, uh, you know, a freshly cooked McDonald's hamburger, huh? Or... Uh, Maybe a 24-year-old McDonald's hamburger. You see this in the news. In a, tuck, in a TikTok video viewed by over 3 million people, um, 
Allie Shelby, a grandmother, Allie Sherby, Allie, I'm sorry, Allie Sherb, a grandmother, grabbed a burger out of a bag that had a 1996 NASCAR advertisement on it. Uh, she said she bought the burger 24 years ago and kept it in a box in a closet. Uh, the hamburger looked like it was uh, just bought, like not decayed or rotted. Uh, obviously, even bacteria and cockroaches and, and mold know not to eat this crap. Um, <laughs> uh, now, that outdoes a similar... Um, uh, a similar story earlier in the year when a Utah man displayed a 20-year-old uh, McDevil's hamburger that uh, had not rotted. Uh, perhaps that it's it's a McDonald's uh, hamburger comes to you uh, pre-rotted, <laughs> already already rotting, right? So anyway. Um, uh, and people still eat at McDon McDonald's, right? I mean, like all this time to, all this time to think, all this time to think. The coronavirus, all these pandemics, you know, they're they're all they're all connected with eating animals and/or animal abuse, from the wet markets, from the farms, from the laboratories. But. Now, if you're thinking, everyone in your family can go vegan. The dogs and cats in your family, too, with Evolution Vegan Dog and Cat Food for all stages of life. Uh, evolution meets uh, or exceeds NRC and AAFCO uh, nutrition requirements. Kibble or cans. Dog and cat treats, too. You can get organic uh, evolution, vegan dog and cat food. From this family-owned vegan business, uh, in business for over 30 years, not one product recall ever, no chemical preservatives or mold inhibitors, and none of the gross ingredients that you might find in uh, commercial so-called pet food, really gross ingredients, uh, which uh, normally would include sick animals and spent hens and ground baby chicks and sewage, uh, and also rendered, poisoned, uh, euthanized dogs and cats, and the poisoning agent. That is often found in commercial dog and cat food. So... You want to have none of that, so uh, order Evolution. You can call 651-228-0632, 651-228-0632, or go to PetFoodShop.com, PetFoodShop.com. Uh, if you call, call Eric Weissman. I'm sure he'll give you a discount, you know, if you're experiencing financial uh, hardship, or if you're a first-time customer, or he'll he'll work with you. So um, Daisy loves evolution. Um, she's been uh, vegan and eating it now for eight years. She's uh, sitting here right next to me, taking a nap, allowing me uh, to be with you at the moment instead of demanding all the attention. I mean, she is the boss. And I want to give a shout-out to Vegetarian House, 
vegan restaurant in San Jose. Please support your local vegan restaurants wherever you are on planet Earth. Um, they are our local community treasures uh, that bring us uh, healthy, nutritious, and delicious alternatives, you know, to the, uh, to the dead animal restaurants, you know, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. All this time to be alone, isolated, and contemplate, and yet, what, you're going to go out and eat decomposing body parts uh, because the because that restaurant comes up with a good gravy to hide it, right? So, I don't know. Anyway, Vegetarian House is 100% uh, vegan, organic, non-GMO, really a fantastic menu. Uh, you can go to Vegetarian House. Dot com. It's at 520 East Santa Clara in San Jose. Uh, you can order online, order and pay, and they'll bring the food out to you. And uh, you can also get some of your groceries or um, organic produce from Vegetarian House. Vegetarianhouse.com. And, uh, okay, so... Um, let me just ask that you please support our program with a tax-deductible donation. You can find the donate button at goveganradio.com, where you can also find over 600 archived programs that you can hear for free. So um, check that out. And uh, all right, coming up on Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden, we will talk to Ria Del Montana um, and her uh, about her book. Eco-Patriarchy, The Origins and uh, Nature of Hunting, and uh, we will talk about our uh, humans' deep vegan origins. Yes, we are herbivores, you know. We are herbivores. Our origins are vegan, and, uh, well, then, deep inside you, there is a vegan yearning to uh, come out. Be free. All right. It's Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. This is Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. On Twitter at Go Vegan Radio, Facebook, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. And uh, you can support our show with a tax-deductible donation. Uh, there is a donate button at GoVeganRadio.com where there are over 600 archived programs for you to listen. Um, and, uh, you know, this... This show started, what, 19 years ago as the very first vegan talk show to infiltrate mainstream media. And uh, when we first started the show, a couple of weeks into it, I was talking to a potential advertiser. And he said, uh, okay, so, you know, two or three shows and you're done, right? There's nothing to discuss. You've covered everything, right? A vegan show. And here we are 19 years later. And we haven't gotten to everything yet. For example, 
when was the last time I had a uh, vegan anarchist uh, primitivist on the show? Never. So it, it's about time we get around to that today, don't you think? And so we have Ria Del Montana, who is uh, the author of a very interesting book called Eco Patriarchy The Origins and Nature of Hunting. So, welcome, Ria. How are you today? Hey, it's great to be here, Bob. Thank you for being with us from uh, Seattle, a place I love very much, where I I used to live. I, I was the program director of The Sound, uh, which was a pretty good name for a radio station uh, there at The Sound, KNUA, um, long ago. So it's amazing how suddenly memories flash through my mind on my, my life in Seattle, how I was longing for sunlight for months on end. Um, of course, the summers are really beautiful there. They, they force you to buy a bicycle. It, it makes you buy a bicycle, like even if you haven't been on one in 30 years. That's what happened to me there. And uh, I remember. Hey, we got. <laughs> you great, have, we have great bike paths here. Great bike paths there, yeah. So I, I was on them. I couldn't believe it. Like after all those years, and it's like, well, it's almost you have to do it in Seattle. And uh, yeah, I wonder if. All the musicians who uh, used to perform at, at shows for the sound are still there or still alive. I don't know. You know, I had, uh, my good old friend Michael Tomlinson, one of my favorite uh, singers, songwriters ever. And there was Michael Powers and Motoretti and Deem Sudakawa with his song Tough Tofu that I used to play. So way back then, songs about tofu. So, so Rhea... Um, first off, um, well, t let's uh, start with the book here. Uh, what's the idea uh, behind it and what uh, prompted you to write Eco-Patriarchy, The Origins and Nature of Hunting? So what prompted me to write it was I came to this point where I was uh, getting really frustrated as an anarcho-primitivist because there's such a focus on hunting and I had a strong feeling that there was a lot more to the story than that. So I started looking deeper and deeper about hunting and the origins of it and um, got into the human diet, going all the way back down our lineage. And it was amazing that I was finding a lot of information the mythology that's so accepted today by mainstream everyone, including anarchists. Um, so, um, so that's well, so you, you said you started off as an anarcho-primitivist, uh, which uh, who who knows what that is? Could you tell us uh, a bit about that? Because that's where you were uh, before writing the book. Well, I think I was born an anarcho-primitivist when I was young. I was living very organically. And I, I was fortunate to live in an area where there was a large field and the edge of a behind my house. And it was just always sorry, out there living you in the moment. You, you were on the edge of and then the, the line broke up a second. Can you hear me better now? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So I was on the edge of 
a field with a wooded forest there. And in my earliest years, I I spent every waking hour I could out in that area. I was just a preschooler, but I was living in the moment and um, just really organically. And uh, then there came the moment when I was kind of yanked out of that and thrown into schooling, you know, putting desks behind, uh, uh, you know, with a teacher boxed into a room and the stark contrast just stayed with me forever. I, f- I feel like it was a really traumatizing event. And I was felt like something about the way we were living just wasn't right. And it kind of correlated also with the way I felt about the people eating animals around me. Um, in the beginning, like when I was first offered fish, I knew it was, uh, you know, an animal. And I said no to it just because the thought of it repulsed me. At what age? But I was so young, I didn't put together that like hamburgers and hot dogs were also animals. Mm-hmm. So I, I was eating at, those. What age, at what age was this? So I I think I was like two or three when I refused fish. Wow. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and then uh, it was like, I remember eating hot dogs and hamburgers maybe at like six or seven. But I always felt, you know, like later on when I realized what it was, I had already been kind of grown acclimated to it. So I just kept doing it, even though I had this feeling that, I was repulsed by the thought of doing what I was doing. And so when I was 17, I went vegetarian. And then later, uh, I think I was in my thirties when I became, um, vegan. And along with that came a more like organic way of living where I listened to my intuitions and listened to my entire being about the way I'm living with the world. So kind of for me, the veganism was paired with an, a very organic, primitivist way of living. So, so primitivist is um, was was your life in the woods there? You felt like uh, you were an inhabitant of uh, planet Earth uh, in 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 the forest, and then it was very unnatural for you suddenly to be at uh, at your desk in school, right? Exactly. But if if those people who want to learn more about Anarcho-primitivism, John Zerzan does the radio show, and he is a very prolific radio um, writer. He does a radio show called uh, Vegan, I mean, I'm sorry, Anarchy Radio. And then the most um, well-known vegan anarcho-primitivist, her name is Layla Abdelrahim. And you can find her on YouTube, and she has a few books out there, too. Interesting. Okay. So you were a primitivist, and then where does the anarchal come in, or the anarchist part of it? What, what the... Well, for me, anarchy is uh, more along the lines of living an organic life instead of an artificial life with uh, artificial power structures of all sorts, including the state. Um, that's my personal experience, and then. Like if you're interested in learning more on vegan anarchy, there's um, Warzone Distro. I would highly recommend you can find them online too. Okay, but you are welcome to go into any part of the subject that you like. It's uh, interesting and uh, and and actually 
new to us on the show. I think, you know, when people hear the word anarchy, I think they think of people uh, maybe who are violent, who just want to tear things down. Is that the impression of, uh, of an anarchist in the, generally in the world today? Well, the, the connotations of the world of the word has kind of been skewed, just like the connotations of the word primitivist and even like the word animal and the word savage have been co-opted by the dominant uh, power structures out there to to kind of um, have propaganda that controls the masses is how I would put it. So we really can't even talk, right? Like we might as as well hang up the phone now because everything we say is. uh, Well, you know, you know, um, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. That's what I'm doing with the word primitivist. (laughs) You know, I'm reclaiming the word. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, then you said you were in this world of anarcho-primitivist um, and there was violence attached to it. In other words, the people who claimed to be the same were into hunting or meat-eating or was that? Yeah, right now there's in the in the United States, um, anarcho-primitivism seems to, there's a, a kind of like a dominating strand of it that seems to some would say co-opt um, more indigenous or tribal cultures. And then they, if you just count the number of times they use the word hunter-gatherers, then that will give you a real clue. That's like the litmus test about how important they see hunting to their thinking in their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then you write this book from the perspective of a vegan anarcho-primitivist, and so let's uh, let's get into the book and some of its uh, premises and uh, or premises uh, and, uh, you know, what, what, what it's about. What uh, what what are you saying here? So generally speaking, like if I go in chronological order, I go all the way back to our times when we were coming down. The forests were shrinking and there were a lot of different primates living in the canopies. And as the forests were shrinking, some of them couldn't handle life on the edge and some were adapting to it. And of those that were adapting to it, the savanna kept growing as the forest was shrinking. And some of them came down and started living along the edge. And what's really interesting now is that there's a lot of science that can give us more information about really early times, about the plants that were there even about the human diet going all the way back then. And um, one of the things that I found that's really interesting um, on the topic of B12, um, they're finding really early plants that were in the area that had bioavailable B12 that were living symbiotically within plants such as sedges during that time frame. So this whole thing about where do we get our B12 from and do you need to eat animals for that? Historically, going way back prehistorically, we, from origins, our deepest origins for millions of years, we were getting our B12 from the plants that were in our environments. Mm-hmm. Even today, there's some plants that have B12 that are still hanging around. There's like duckweed and others, and I go into some detail in my book on some of those plants. 
And and so then after um, we came down and we were moving on to the Savannah, we and, were and pl- we we are we are who we are. Uh, we, we are Australopithecines during that time. Um, ah. One of which might might be Australopithecus afarensis. Well, it'll take so, me a while to memorize uh, those words, but uh, and and. and <laughs> Okay, and and so, so what, basically, what, that's when yeah, we became that, that's when we became bipedal. So because we were out, we, 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 we were a species that came down from the trees, um, right? Is that yeah, yeah? So some of the evidence that we once lived up in trees, and we we were actually building nests. Some of the evidence with it of that time actually remains with us in our bodies. Um, there's one instinct that dates back that far, and a certain po- percentage of the human population still has it. And that is, if, if you've ever fallen asleep, like in a chair or in some way where you're not laying flat, grounded, um, if you wake up with a, a suddenness, like all of a sudden you wake up, um, that's an instinct that you might be falling out of the nest. Uh-huh. And so you're programmed to like wake up suddenly mm-hmm. to readjust your weight or whatever you need to do. And another um, instinct of those times is when babies are born, they have the grasp. I'm sure people who've been around infants know if you put your finger in their hand, they grasp really tight. And it's amazing how strong that grasp is. In a few months, they end up losing it, but that's only because they're not using it. They used to grasp onto our fur while we were living up in the trees so that they wouldn't fall. Uh, and so, okay, so when we were living up in the trees, we were called what again? The name uh, of the, or the species or at the time? One of them was Australopithecus, but I'm not sure of the other primate species genus names during that time. Mm-hmm. And so we... Uh, we didn't fall out of the trees, or how, how did we wind up on the ground walking on, on two legs? <laughs> so, so as the forests were shrinking, we had no choice but to, if we were going to keep living, we had to adapt to moving down, moving along the edge. When we were along the edge, we, 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 the recent research is that we were hugging the, the, the woods. We stayed with it as long as we could as it was shrinking. And that was well, probably, that almost feels natural today, also to hug the woods or to hug a tree, right? right. So, tree huggers, exactly. Might be. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, you know, still getting food resources from it, and plus we were needing protection because the savanna was filled with a lot of predators. There were megafauna around. There was saber-toothed tiger and big bears and hyenas and all kinds of um, predators that were you know, chasing and eating us. And so we were concerned for our safety. We were, we and we were more to... prey at that time, right? Or yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and so then uh, we eventually had no choice. The forest kept shrinking. The savanna kept growing. We started, you know, getting our food mainly from wetland, um, sedge bulbs, stuff like that. And so we were struggling, hanging in there. Um, and, and then... Uh, there came a point when there was a climatic shift is what the theory is. Um, things were changing quickly and quick changes tend to lead to quick co-adaptations if you're going to survive. So um, the first 
uh, venture into eating meat seems to be that we started passive scavenging out of desperation. So as some of the same animals that were eating other animals and were eating us, when they uh, had a kill, we out of desperation were waiting for the other animals to finish the meal. And then we were moving in, stealing bones that other animals couldn't break and stealing the head and uh, hauling it off to safety. We were using rocks to break open the bones and then getting up into the brain. And both the marrow and the brain are very, very high in fat. So as our diet started shifting, our our biology in time started adapting to that way of eating uh, in terms of wanting the nutrients from fat and the amount of calorie intake that you can get from that new diet way. So that was the initial excursion out. And then fast there, forward. There were herbivores, right? And, and I think our physiology today, you know, is, is that of an herbivore. But we were herbivores and then got desperate. To, I mean, I wouldn't we have been repulsed or would, would we? I mean, it's strange that we would say, like, yeah, okay, let's. Let's eat a dead animal now, right? Or is or that's out of desperation uh, that uh, there were there was no more yeah. plant food or uh, that. So let's let's eat an animal head now. Uh, I don't know if I could get yeah. that desperate myself as a vegan for thirty six years. Uh, my <laughs> that would take some desperation for me to go for that, right? So. Hey, maybe there were purist vegans who refused and the, just chose death over it. Who knows? <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> but in the beginning, we were walking amongst other herbivores, other herbivores. Other animals weren't afraid of us because we weren't doing anything to hurt them. Like now when you walk close to a bird or try to walk close to a bird, it knows to run away and other animals do the same. And there's um, various uh, accounts like there was a, um, a volcano that left ash along a huge expanse somewhere in Africa, I forget where, and they looked at the footprints to see which species were out and about, and humans were right in the mix walking close to other herbivores. Uh, no one had any reason to fear us at that time. But they learned, huh? Yeah, exactly. We taught them to fear us. <laughs> yeah. So um, there we are at a desperation, uh, sucking bones and eating uh, heads of animals and yeah. Then what? Then so uh, then we started um, out of survival needs again, started uh, learning different methods, probably, you know, observing how other animals were um, hunting and coming up with different objects and technologies in order to move from passive to active scavenging and then to start finding various ways to hunt various animals. Um, and, you know, this is, it varies by where you were at and who you were with. Um, for example, in, there was a 2017 study. It goes back to about um, 45 or 50,000 years ago. And, you know, flash forward up to um, the Neanderthals when they were living in Europe. Um, with DNA technology, they're able to scrape the calculus off of teeth, and that can tell you years' worth of data about what humans were eating back then. And 
at El Cedron Cave in Spain, um, they found two individuals who had a vegan diet. They were eating like mushrooms, pine nuts, moss, and then about a thousand mi miles away from there at Spy Cave in Belgium where it was colder and it was um, more open savanna, they had a heavy meat diet. So some say that the the diet way of various groups, even though these were both Neanderthals, heavily depended on the environmental conditions. But I like to look beneath that at what the ethos was behind the life way and the diet way. So kind of like the uh, norms or the philosophy, um, the early thinking that people had in their early culture um, back during those times. Well, let us, uh, let us in on it. <laughs> okay. So going back again, um, my, my book is um, pretty influenced by another book by uh, anthropologist, uh, Penny Spikens, she's in England, and her book is uh, How Compassion Made Us Human. And, and for her, she has a theory that um, early humans, as they were carving hand axes in the various things that they were using them for during that time, whether it was to get meat off a of bone or whatever it was, um, that there came a point in time when they started um, put it, doing it with almost an art-like quality. They were making it more uh, symmetrical and more artistic, basically. And for her, there was a lot of meaning behind that. For her, that's when um, Homo sapien or Homo became human in that moment. And so she got into it, her theory about what was going on socially within the group that would spark that. And the theory is that uh, with a lot of various climatic changes and um, desperation and ad advancing technology increasingly toward more intensive hunting, that humans started working together as a group because the advantage of being able to have more successful hunt. And in that working together as a group, all these social dynamics started getting honed. People started looking each other in the eye, trying to read how they can trust, watching their actions for loyalty to the group. Uh, group um, prioritized over individuals. Um, caretaking became a huge thing. And for her, that's when that was the birth of a more intensified level of compassion that she says, you know, lasted and we can still see in us, we still feel it today. Um, for me, I take that uh, a little bit further and I say that was the birth of compassion, but it put a twist in us because we started um, as that came out of hunting and yet we also had compassion and we had an innate compassion that we still have for other animals not wanting to cause them harm. We um, are repulsed by any animal having suffering. And so what happened is we started rationalizing because part of the brain was developing at that time uh, associated with talk and thinking. 
And so with advanced thinking came an ability to kind of like develop the kind of thinking where you go in denial about what you your actions are in order. It's like a self-protective mechanism. You can't stand what you're doing, but in order to be with the group and in order to survive, you feel you have to do it. So you have to lie to yourself, basically. I, so, I, I love your theory. Keep, keep, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, was, I can relate to what you're saying, I, you know, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was the birth of rationalizing that remains with us today. You know, vegans get so frustrated when we go tell our truths to people and, you know, expect that anyone in their right mind would see it and like, you know, and convert or whatever you want to call it. And we, we get so frustrated when they don't. And that frustration is based on we're perceiving the other person's self-rationalization. That's what stands in the way of them making the change. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's and, fascinating that you're saying that, you know, the, the, the last place we might expect, uh, you know, compassion to originate would be hunting, you know, and, uh, you know, making right. tools and all of that. And then... Um, then you realize what you're doing, and it's like, what am I doing? How do I get out of this? You know, I can almost relate in the sense that, you know, you have all these kids who are in 4-H, and they raise these animals, and they love the animals, and boom, off to market they go. Or And then they rationalize and say, well, that's, you know, just the way it is, just the way it is, right? Yeah. And, you know, like when you list out all the rationalizations, every single one of them is refutable. You know, it's it's gotten to the arguments are out there, like in social media, they've been propagating for, you know, over a decade or more. And every single one is refutable. It's just getting like, where is the bottom line before the mass change mm-hmm. can happen? So, so what, what are some of those rationalizations and how are they refuted? Oh, Back in the day, I have no idea. <laughs> so, no, but you, you, know, you just with, said all of the, all of the, we have all of these rationalizations and they're all refutable. So, um, what uh, rationalizations do we? Oh, see? you know, like uh, it's the circle of life. You know, a, a lot of them they know that like uh, you can't touch anything that's associated with hunter gatherers or indigenous people. So a lot, a lot of them that can be their final fallback. Um, you know, or they use every part of the animal, you know, it goes on and on and on. There's a whole bunch of those. So I go into the taboo area of refuting the, the tribal and indigenous rationalizations also. And I actually interview quite a few Native Americans in my book also who are vegan and, and exp- they tell their story of how they, um, deal with their own tribal people or their own culture and also how they deal with the expropriation of their um of their people and with um people adopting their rationalization to justify their own meat eating you know and i'm not you know people who don't hunt you know they use tribal thinking in order to justify going to McDonald's, you know? Right, yeah. There, there are people who say, oh, well, we, we bless the animal, you know, they're, uh, you know, whatever. Right. Um, so, and, and you say that there are indigenous people who are vegan who refute um, those uh, traditions, and, and what do they say? 
Well, there's a whole bunch of different ways that they approach it. And they themselves, most of them that I interview had to be really careful about how they express it. You know, they basically, some of them are addressing the machismoism within their own tribal people. So they want to remain with the tribe and they want to tr the tribe to change. But at the same time, it's really hard. You know, they're already under a lot of pressure on so many fronts. Uh, and then there was one indigenous person who was more kind of a stronger, just like attack bat. She bit, she bit back. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, by by saying what? Well, you got to read the book. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Well, that's that, 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 that works for. Um... No, I don't remember all the details. <laughs> oh, I just okay. remember, like, being like, <laughs> well, then you wow, then you so have to read wrong. your book. Please, you read your book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Eco patriarchy: the origins and nature of hunting. We're talking to Ria Del Montana, and. Um, I think years ago I had a guest on my show, Rita Laws, Dr. Rita Laws, who um, uh, wrote about vegetarianism and uh, Native Americans or indigenous people. And she was saying we would be surprised at how many vegans there were and what, you know, fruits and vegetables were being cultivated in the middle of the United States. But, you know, the, the ones who win the war get to write history, too. So, you know, suddenly. And, and I think she, she blamed... Um, guns the introduction of guns and uh maybe the combination of horses and guns or something yeah. to that effect uh, mm -hmm. so. yeah she's in my book too is she oh okay she's mm -hmm. uh, yeah. very uh, great source of uh, of information there so um yeah. okay so then uh where are we uh on our uh on our road here where uh well go ahead if I if I flash forward mm -hmm. to today, vegans and all people within civilization are also still rationalizing. Um, so we're not like there's no angels in this story, you know, because we all have the ability to rationalize and we all do it. And unfortunately, Homo sapiens has found a way through various technologies to uh, invade and colonize and annihilate almost every niche of every habitat on the whole planet. And so, you know, a lot of people are getting extremely aware and having the feelings and thoughts that come along with all of that and what to do about it. Um, and from my perspective, what I see happening is there's an, an innate um, drive in humans to be a part of a thriving, diverse community, wild community, and uh, do, do so symbiotically. Um, and we are happy and thriving when others are happy and thriving who live around us. And But unfortunately, civilization's infrastructures have raised all the land on the entire planet um, I think 76% uh, of uh, agricultural land, you and I talked about this, is uh, used for animal agriculture. So that's about the size of Africa. Um, but the other 24% of agricultural land is still, you know, veg vegetable or fruit-based or grain-based. So we still are taking the place 
of wildlife, we've uh, raised the, their homes away. And in order that has, you know, a huge consequence, we're in the middle of a, the sixth mass extinction, except this one being human caused. And a lot of it has to do not just with agriculture, but with all the technology, technology, technologies of civilization that we've changed the world into. We've created this artificiality all over the place. And so one of my invitations for vegans is to begin, um, maybe there's already people doing this, but begin thinking more and taking action more for the wildlife that are still struggling and the ones that are recently extirpated that have a chance of returning to their home. And it's really simple. Um, like there's some knowledge you have to acquire, but in terms of the actions that you can take, it's as simple as putting seeds in the ground, uh, removing some lawn space and uh, finding out why indigenous plants used to be there and maybe some wildlife connections they have that were indigenous of animals that recently at the most thriving moment in time used to live in that place and planting them and um, inviting the return of the indigenous animals that our species has raised away from and replaced with uh, civilizations. And, and decimated, yeah. Some, um, in the archives at goveganradio.com uh, is uh, an interview I did with Joseph Poor from Oxford University and um, he was part of a research study that said the, he, he has come to the conclusion that, you know, a vegan population, vegan human population would be transformative, that uh, it would free land. It, it's the only, he says it's the only way to stop mass extinction and that it, it would free land the size of Africa for reforestation and, and species recovery. Um, so going vegan seems to be the only solution. And so uh, there you are in Seattle. So I assume you're practicing what you're preaching. So specifically, you know, what are you doing then? You're saying you're, you're uh, restoring um, uh, what forest or wetlands or, you know, what, what's your involvement as part of the process uh, to which you are inviting uh, vegans? I was fortunate to have a real, easier entry into restoration ecology um, because there's in Seattle, there's a big program here called Green Seattle Partnership. And it's a collaboration between Seattle Parks and the nonprofit for Terra, which is a land conservation organization. So they've been doing this for 15 years and they provide training and support for volunteers to go into. We have tons of remnant natural areas throughout Seattle. It's basically, a lot of people don't realize how hilly we are and how landslide prone we are, but there's a lot of uh, land that was undevelopable. And so a lot of those natural areas are just like civilization's rejects, basically. So um, I've been fortunate to be able to be involved with them. and, And we have enormous... Uh, public work parties going on all over the city. There's about 100 stewards who are active, and we have lots of work parties that are unfortunately closed right now due to COVID. But um, the land ethic around here is really strong. There's tons of support for it. 
And so, uh, how do people find out about uh, those in Seattle? Um, that so if you go to green, greensaddle.org, you can hook up with volunteering. Um, but then also if wherever you're at and, um, you know, I don't know how many of your viewers are only, only in the U.S. We're, uh, but we're I think all around this the book, world. Uh, it's an international audience. Oh, okay. Then I can give you two references. One of them is, uh, an, what do you call the people who study spiders and bugs? I forget. Entomologist? Yeah, I, yeah. I forget, too. I forget. <laughs> there, there's an entomologist named Douglas Tellamy who wrote this book, Bringing Nature Home. And he talks about how you can, around you in your yard, in the public parkways around you, you can, um, he goes into detail explaining why it's important to only plant natives. He gets into the chemistry and biology of it, and he gives some guidance on how to do that. You know, it's every locality has their own unique indigenous wildlife communities, so you have to go through a process of learning yours. And then uh, there's another book called Bringing Home the Bush. That's out of Australia, and that's uh, some sisters who wrote it. Joan Bradley is the main one. They started with their theory is uh, where colonizing humans have come into areas, the colonizing plants and animal, animals have followed. And so they remove the uh, non-native ind- invasive species and leaving time and space for the uh, natives to retake the space. And it got really popular for a while in Australia, and it was starting to spread worldwide. They were like doing trainings in other countries and stuff, but then all of a sudden it just stopped. But that would be really cool to see, you know, that catch on like wildfire again. Uh, don't say wildfire. I'm in Northern California, please. I'm I'm smelling them today. <laughs> I'm smelling the smoke now. Is it araniology? Araniology around um, for spiders here. A r a m e o. Araniology is that? What it says for I forget what's entomology. I don't know, but he's some really good scientist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that that's the best thing, you know. The the best endorsement is a really good scientist. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So um, <laughs> now um, so so I I, I see that w- when you describe your book, you say it details humans' deep vegan origins. So. So do we, is that what we feel? Do we have deep vegan origins within us? Is that, I mean. It's pretty much getting to be established within anthropology that uh, Australopithecines were, uh, had a vegan diet. Um, There's, it's hard to even imagine, you know, when you look at your own fingernails and your own teeth, it's hard to imagine, you know, like, especially on their landscape at the time with all the megafauna where they were busy hiding constantly. It's hard to imagine them, you know, being big hunters, you know, with, you know, running after and catching people on the open savanna and um, ripping into the flesh with their canines, their dull canines. And you just can't even, like, it doesn't even seem like it makes sense. And when you look at their canines, they're very, comparable to other herbivores even back that far so uh, that's getting more and more established so then the point is you know people 
say, well, we evolved to be omnivores. Well, yeah, with all the various technologies that we used that also go along with how we started invading and colonizing and causing the extinction of other species. Now they're thinking the sixth mass extinction went back like 40,000 years, you know, and that's about when we were moving out of our species was moving out of Africa and the mass ex- extinction event of the megafaunas followed the path as Homo sapiens moved across the planet and they've compared well, it was climate change, but they and they found that the megafauna singled out, and it doesn't make sense that they others would disappear. Some would disappear, and not others. And there's uh, studies on the impact that that uh, extinction event is causing, uh, and how it changed the landscape. So we. Well, before, like a lot of people, birth of agriculture, but in my book, I go back and look at other stepping stones, um, such as controlled fire and how that impacted our landscape and the lives of other animals. Um, And that goes back to when we were first moving out of Africa and doing organized hunting with various types of weapons. So, uh, so that, that's the, uh, the basis for uh, colonization then first started with other species and then. Uh, right. Went. Well, even to this day, like when you, if you ask another human, it's even denied you're, that they're an breaking, animal anymore. Breaking up, breaking up a little bit there. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, a, a lot of humans even deny that they're an animal anymore. But if you ask a fellow human, what's the human habitat? Like, we feel like we're entitled somehow to go live in any, anywhere we want, that we are, we shouldn't have to have any boundaries, even natural boundaries. There came a point, we used to have habitat ranges just like all other animals have. A point when we were turned, we're becoming colonizing, when we started thinking of ourselves as somehow more superior than other and more entitled that we shouldn't have to live by any boundaries such as these. And so how does it relate to uh, male, female? Uh, Was it that uh, this idea of uh, male superiority comes from the hunting itself, that the males were doing that or like what? uh... Well, another interesting book is Richard Ringham's. um, I think it was, how cooking made us human. And he talks about that for him, he theorizes that when we started cooking, a lot of people misinterpret his book and they say that's because we were cooking meat, but he gets into, it was just extra calories. The vegetation was so dense that we were able to cook it down and eat a lot more with fewer chews that expended the same number of calories. And, and so um, with the change into cooking came increased calories and that provided for increased brain size. And then it also correlated with the hunt uh, that got uh, incorporated. They were able to use like um, 
like long sticks. They were able to put the tip of it into fire to create, uh, to sharpen it, to use it as a weapon. So there were other ways that fire um, added to the ability to hunt. And then in general, men started being the ones who would go off hunting. And that took a long time. Uh, there was no guarantee that they would come back with anything. So they, and they were gone for long periods of time. And so then you get women staying home, tending the fire, tending the children, doing the cooking. And um, when men would come back and uh, at various times there, there might've been um, some stealing of the, like if a man hunted an animal and he brought it back and the, a, a woman cooked it and then someone else took it, then there became like this resentment. So you got this new dynamic going on. And so he theorizes that that was the beginning of um, mating, of um, paired, paired mating, um, that it was like a protection racket where the man would say, okay, I'll go hunt and I'll bring you and only you this animal and you cook it and watch it while I'm away and I'll protect you from it getting stolen and we'll just do this between the two of us. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So the, the beginning of the origins of monogamy is what he theorizes. And so from that, you get into men are off hunting. They have more free time. They're out doing this like more adventurous thing. And um, the power structure, like they, they are of a size where they can use their might against other people. And then women needing them for protection. So then you get more power dynamics and hierarchies coming into play. And I believe controlled fire was became widespread. I think it was like about 50,000 years ago. You know, it started long before that, but they might still be you know, pinning down a time. So, See, I, I, yeah, I've that, always blamed meat-eating for, for being what's wrong with everything in the world. And you're, you're adding even more evidence onto that today, I feel. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> really... Uh, it's amazing, and uh, and and I appreciate again going back to the thought that um, we were developing language, and and a lot of that language had to go to rationalizing that we knew killing was wrong. I mean, uh, there is a "thou shalt not kill" um, you know uh, concept out there, and uh, and we know deep down inside that it's wrong. I mean, even. You know, you have this guy who is, uh, you know, Joe Rogan, who has the most popular podcast in the world with millions and millions of people listening. And, uh, you know, he's he's very big on elk hunting and using bow and arrow. And, uh, you know, he's he's the uh, manly man, the uh, MMA uh, announcer. And, uh, you know, but uh, on one show he did admit that he had remorse, you know, I mean, you, you obviously have to rationalize, you know, when you're doing something wrong, that's that, as you say, is, you know, we have humans have a, a deep vegan origin, you know, so it really takes a lot mm -hmm. to, you know, I, I think it messes up our minds, you know, in lots of ways. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Our, 
our minds, our health, just every aspect. You can you can link it together. Right. Everything. Me... If, if we're saying like, oh, we naturally grew into meat eaters, well, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, you know, all of these problems, you know, uh, don't seem to yeah. happen with the uh, the carnivores out there. And we do have the physiology of an herbivore. And Dr. Milton Mills has uh, talked about that extensively. And you can find him on YouTube talking about that, you know, everything from, well, mm -hmm. as you said, well, we, ha we have about a 30 foot long uh, intestine. And uh, as you mentioned, if, if we had to run after other animals and use our, our teeth and our claws, We'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> right, right. We're lucky we can pick, you know, fruit or whatever, you know, that uh, we might be. Let, let me go back. Let me go back to the hunting thing because I can throw out one more really good book that that I can't believe isn't more popular. It, um, it was written by a hunter who turned vegan, and he's in Wisconsin, and his name is uh, Kenneth Damro, D-A-M-R-O. He wrote this book called A North Woodsman's Guide to Everyday Compassion. And he, he gets into part of what uh, there's this one section where he compares, like when people use bows because they say, and they're like really starting to co-opt the indigenous cultures when they do stuff like that. Um, he, he gets into the details comparing when you hunt with bows compared to hunting with guns and how it affects the suffering of the animal uh, and can it would make can, a, go, go ahead sorry it would make a nice uh, little birth uh, christmas gift for joe rogan i think <laughs> ken, <laughs> ken was a guest on my show but i it may be that he was on before my archives now at, at goveganradio.com so while i have i don't know about 640 or so archives there there were the shows in uh that were done in uh, other forms that were on CD or mini disc or whatever that wound up in somebody's garage that wound up, you know, missing or whatever. But Ken, I, Ken was a guest on this show who knows how long ago, and uh, it might be nice to have him on again. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think the cool thing about that was written, I don't know, like a decade ago or something. I would love to hear how his views have changed. He's actually a friend of mine. So, oh, yeah? Well, then call um, him and ask him. I have a little or, bit. Or, <laughs> or uh, I may have lost I, this contact information, but if I could get that from you, I'd, I'd like to have him on again. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and how yeah, I'll hunting, get it to you. Uh, uh, how does hunting relate to, um, I mean, then it went on to domestication, right? I mean, it's not hunting so much anymore as... Uh, you know, barns and the barnyard and old McDonald's farm here. Uh, what, what do we think about right. that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, that correlates with so many of the power, hierarchical power issues that go on. But I think, you know, with the vegans, that's where um, I think a lot of vegans are still into a heavy life way of domestication. And it shows in the types of animals that they feel comfortable getting involved with, like all the pets. And, and you know, like 30% of all meat is eaten by dogs. Mm. Um, in, our in our local park system, 80% of the trash is dog crap in plastic baggies. You know, mm. it goes on and 
Well, I, I have... so so Daisy is listening now, right next to me here, and uh, da- Daisy eats um, evolution vegan dog food. So Daisy wanted there me you... to make sure that you know people didn't yeah. think that she was that part of the problem. But of course, we would like to prevent the birth of dogs and cats as much as possible. Um, right. But you know, they're and, here. You know... Through no fault uh, of their the, own, so and need and to be in adopted. The, in, the, in the forest, there's lots of dog damage that's going on. There's interspecies conflicts, like dogs versus coyotes. People actually poison coyotes because they're afraid it's going to hurt their dogs. And and then there's been studies, like Audubon has studied, just the presence of a, of dogs in a forest impacts the. the nesting of birds it goes on you know dogs aren't wildlife they were humans actually raped them into their current form they force bred them so that they would have the traits that they have you know for certain physical traits or personality traits like people like to feel that compassion and affection and all that and i think that that also speaks to the kind of loneliness that's so pervasive in civilization you know, we're no longer in these bands of people that are so close and very intimate. And that separation from the uh, wild world has given us uh, almost like a neurotic type of life way that um, causes us to focus so much on domestication and keep to try to meet the needs that we no longer have. Right. And, and then the other um, domesticated animals that human vegans focus on is the um, the so-called food animals, which, you know, I totally agree with everyone for focusing on trying to help in that area. But the, the void of aid is for wildlife. And I, at times I'm astounded that there isn't more action being taken by vegans on that front. We're so interconnected. If we lose the pollinators, you know, like we, we're not, uh, we, you know, read the articles and then we just hit like or whatever and keep going. But there's things people can do right around you, like right now, that will help make connectivity corridors to give safe um, space, uh, safe homes and food for various indigenous animals that really could use your, your assistance right now. So doing what specifically again might people do right now? So um, a, a lot of it revolves around vegetation because their homes are in vegetation. That's where they get their food from and that's where they have, they reproduce in there and have nests and um, their, uh, the, the space and protection that they need all comes from vegetation. So it's about learning what uh, indigenous areas in your uh uh, animals in your area, what they need. And then, it, you know, it could be as simple as buying a packet of seeds. You know, it doesn't take a lot. And then you can take it up from there. And uh, if you want, you, you can have plants on all ground levels uh, or, you know, ground level plant and um, bushes and then trees and start, you know, adding diversity in the vegetation also. Uh, so it's actually fun to learn about this stuff. If if you go to Audubon meetings or like in the U.S., we have every place has uh, native plant societies. 
you can um, learn about, go hang out with people who are actively involved in restoring habitat, rewilding, and then you'll get a lot of your connection to the natural world back and you know, a lot of your own personal needs end up getting fulfilled <laughs> when you're doing that. It's amazing. Sure. And you might for not, mental health purposes, like... people often, you know, you got to take a walk in the woods or, or find a place that pretends to be woods around you. You know, that's uh, that's it for me. I mean, I need to be in some place that feels somewhat natural, like like uh, like you said, instead of being uh, in the behind the elementary school desk there being in the woods. <laughs> So, you know, we're talking today to, on uh, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden to Rhea Del Montana, and her book is Eco Patriarchy The Origins and um, Nature of Hunting. And uh, I think you wanted to talk about the illustrations in the book, too. Um, yeah, I wanted to thank um, Miles Lucas. He's a vegan tattoo artist in Milwaukee, and he did a lot of the illustrations for my book, took a lot of time and uh, a lot of research on getting the details right and th his illustrations are just really amazing like some some artists like my book just for the illustrations there, there's quite a few and, and they're really interesting and, and then how can people get your book so you can get it on Amazon but if you are um, not into buying from Amazon which uh, good on you you can get it <laughs> <laughs> you can get it at Warzone Distro online, Warzone Distro. Um, you can just, like, email them and work something out. And then what about your websites uh, that, that you have? Um, so you can find me at veganprimitivist.wordpress.com, and I admin the Facebook group Vegan Anarchist Primitivist. So uh, if you want to have discussion online, that would be a good place to start. Okay. And, and of course, Skype broke up just a little bit while you were mentioning those. So could you give them to us again? And then hopefully people can spell primitivist, right? This is, this is your intelligence test. Can you spell <laughs> primitivist? <laughs> so my, my blog is at veganprimitivist.wordpress.com. And I admin the Facebook group, Vegan Anarchist Primitivist. Okay. All right. And uh, what, have, what, what have we missed addressing here? What, uh, what do you want to cover that uh, we haven't thus far? Uh, Anything? Well, do you want to talk personal? Uh, it, it depends on how personal you want to get, but sure. <laughs> you, you, you had you had mentioned that you got fired from your job at, uh, at the radio in Seattle. Did you yeah. want me to bring that up? I was curious what the heck happened. Okay, well, uh, I was uh, I was up there probably for a couple of years at the Sound, and um, I oddly enough, uh, I was covering environmental news too much for Gannett, which was a major corporation who owned the station. And they were upset with um, that we were, you know, I mean, they, they wanted to, that was, it was at the time of the Alaska oil spill. And uh, what I had my station do was uh, we were collecting towels for otters who were um, 
in the oil spill. So we, we mobilized the city of Seattle. We had health clubs and hotels and, you know, just a lot of people donating towels. Um, and then um, they wanted to run um, advertising for, for Exxon at that time, which I, uh, I objected to oh! that. <laughs> I objected to that. And then they, you know, they wanted to run advertising for fur, you know, but I mean, like, where do you draw the line? Because so, so much of the advertising in commercial media is destructive to animals and the environment anyway. So, you know, so so they're they're running these ads for fur and I have people calling me who are, you know, upset with me um, saying, oh, you, you want to save them from the Alaska oil spill, but you're willing to you know sell them as clothing. Right. So it's like, hey, talk to the general manager. And and, you know, just a little conflict uh, seemed to increase there. And uh, that uh, that 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 was it. Um, so, mm -hmm. I mean, I had a, a beautiful little cabin on Lake Washington there for a while. I lived in Leshy and I actually uh, bought a house in West Seattle. So um, if anybody wants to know how to turn $40,000 into uh, $5,000 overnight, uh, you buy real estate and then get fired immediately. So uh, <laughs> thank you, Gannett. I think they gave me three shares of their stock or something, but yeah. You know. Where are they now? So, um, yeah, it was a, a gypsy radio life. And I had a great time in Seattle. I was on the board of directors of the Progressive Animal Welfare Society and, uh, you know, had a, had a very interesting, great time with the people there. I loved Seattle. Um, I loved my job, so I could handle that it would rain starting in October and I wouldn't see the sun until April. Um, I, I love being there, but, uh, then it was on to the rest of my gypsy radio life until radio stations themselves, uh, themselves became obsolete, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, I, and you know, you talked about it being a very hilly place. Well, I, I remember that, you know, walking around downtown Seattle where the radio station was near the Pike place market where I was, uh, horrified that you know the way they throw the fish around there that was the big tourist attraction throwing the big fish to customers there and then i think i ate it a, pretty much every day at a place called the gravity bar and i had rice and tahini dressing which was really great and then some vegetable juice and then then it was on the road again you know from from seattle so um, and so, okay, so if we're getting personal then, um, how do you live in a city and, you know, you're kind of removing yourself, you say, from um, civilization to a degree. So how, you know, do you not drive a car and have a license or go to Starbucks or what, uh, what, 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 what are you doing to be the, uh, the, the wild primitivist uh, that, that you want to be? Oh my gosh, it's such a, I wish I could be a wild primitivist. <laughs> my Don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm tending the wetland and the wetland is a discovery park. And uh, um, the forest that I tend is in West Seattle, actually. Um, so I do those things and uh, I, it's not like I'm trying to pay for the my sins but um the other thing i do is uh i try to avoid buying 
food because food is, uh, you know, so I have sourced through agriculture, which is a huge harm. So I, I forage and um, uh, food you, nut bombs. You, you, and, for, you forage for food? You, you're not buying, you, you tend to avoid buying food at the market, you're saying? Right. So my food comes from a number of sources, like whatever I can do in the moment. So it's foraging and food nut bombs and food banks where things are getting thrown out if you don't eat them. Like I'm not creating the demand for it. Mm. And then dumpster diving and then just networking with uh, other people to, you know, like if you have more food than you need, you know, sharing it. Um yeah, so I try to avoid the entire agriculture system. And, and what do you eat when foraging? What do you find? Uh, are you foraging in in the forest or woods there? Or? So the cool thing is, like now now that I've learned, um, my my foraging has kind of goes along along with my restoration strategies. So if there's plants that are uh, uh, monoculturing over the diversity of indigenous habitat like Himalayan blackberry, then um, like a plant like that, you want to take as many berries as you can from while you're also digging out the roots. Um, And then the rare plants or the plants that other wildlife need, I know to leave those. So there's all these rules about ethical foraging and there's like a general rule. Don't take more than 20% of any plant, but there's some like once you know your indigenous habitat around you you can start working in your strategy for foraging in relation to that also Mm. there's also like stinging nettle um which it's one of those you got to go by the 20 percent or really a five percent rule because uh there's like four butterflies that are dependent on it and two of them uh are only use stinging nettle so they're uh, 100% dependent on that, and those are butterflies that are uh, rare or uncommon or extirpated even. So um, I try not to take too much stinging nettle. Um, but you can use a plant like stinging nettle for, uh, you know, like in Europe, I think it's really known for nettle soup. Um, you can eat it raw. Uh, people make nettle past pesto. Um, you can put it like in any of your pastas, stuff like that. And I take it you're probably not a fan of uh, the pharmaceutical then, pharmaceuticals, and uh... exactly. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you 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 may not want the Bill Gates vaccine. Uh, when... Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's where a lot of ethnobotany comes in because um, various tribal people had they would use. Uh, a plant for various uh, medical reasons based on the tribe. Like they all used it differently. Um, so for example, I have Raynaud's, uh, which about 10% of all people have it. And it's where, especially your hands and feet get really cold to the point that they like go numb and turn white. And um, indigenous people, some of them here used to use uh, stinging nettle for circulatory issues too. They would flog so I, I will like use stinging nettle to flog on my fingers and I'll take off my shoes and flog on my feet too. And it stings, but at the same time, it's doing its magic basically. You, you mean stinging like nettles stings? 
Yeah, it does sting. Wow. <laughs> Something it that, whose name finally relates to it, right? I mean, it's like right, right. How, how unusual. Well, I see that in some of the writing that was out there related to you. Um, oh, so how, how would a population, you know, we're 7 billion on the way to 9 billion, uh, is can we all realistic some realistically take on the primitivist vegan life i mean what what could the world I mean, do or can you only do it because you're in the forest in seattle or i know it's it's like a transition but you know if you think of it the transition really could happen quickly and like ideally i i would like to see like 100,000 humans living in a habitat that's that more matches how humans naturally live but when you look at historically like in the united states there were millions of native americans living here before european contact and you know they had a huge die-off i think it was like 80 or 90 percent when uh trading started and that brought with it they they didn't realize that smallpox was going to be part of the trade and it ended up decimating uh, tribal people. So, you know, it's possible to have lots of people, millions of people were here at the time, and they were still living in a way that um, it probably actually increased the diversity of the various life forms at that time. Um, I- so, you know, lifestyle and you're right we absolutely have to get these numbers down i mean if there were uh eight billion uh lions around the whole planet you know would we feel that that's all good and natural or are we are we being human supremacist about the number of us yes we are human supremacists human privilegists i guess Uh, (laughs) yeah so maybe maybe bill gates vaccine is a good idea since it's supposed to depopulate the planet uh maybe uh Uh, uh, just not to depopulate but i mean he's doing it in a pretty fascist way isn't he isn't he like picking and choosing yeah yeah he's uh he wants everybody to be vaccinated and uh have a little uh chip uh, in their hand with their uh, vaccine records so that they can get into the baseball game or on the train or plane or whatever and uh yeah and then he of course is uh testing it uh on uh, people in india and uh, africa uh, who are um experiencing uh, horrific reactions to it um it's it's you know i i don't know i guess uh, when do you have enough billions where you don't want any more? Why is it can't can't everybody just have one billion? No, when these people have billions and billions, they seem to want more, you know, and then and then they take on that they think they're they're God or something, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. So uh, they they want to have these forced vaccinations, and if you look, you know, there, there's nothing vegan about a vaccine, uh, you know. Plus uh, all the toxicity from uh, Everything from mercury, formaldehyde, um, you know, pig urine, and uh, who knows, uh, egg mm. protein, and uh, uh, fetal, uh, human fetal tissue, uh, monkey brains, you name it, uh, they throw it in a vaccine, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they tell you it's healthy, and then they wonder why everybody is crazy and sick in this world, you know? 
So yeah. you eat meat and get vaccinated. Bob, you must have a lot of coping mechanisms in your brain to be able to deal with all those awful details. Oh, a lot of people can't stand all that, you know? Who, who says I'm coping? This is, <laughs> this, is, this is our moments together here. Then when, then when we hang up, uh, I bet I'm back to like, what? Where am I? You know, what planet is this? You know, what, what am I doing here? So, you know, I mean, what I'm doing here, I feel, is like my mission is just to try to help the world go vegan. I never imagined that I would host the first vegan show and how active I would be in the vegan cause and trying to organize, you know, reggae vegan festivals and now trying to do all those kinds of things online. And uh, who who knew it would take, you know, this would be the cause of my life. I grew up as... A normal person, I never questioned, like you, to, to be questioning eating fish, you know, at the age of two or three and, and other animals, that, you know, and I just was shoving everything, every animal down my throat without a second thought, you know, and uh, how disgusting, you know, and uh, my mother loved me, I, you know, had she known about, mom, what are you doing? What are we eating? You know, my father died of a heart attack at age 47 and... Uh, you know, just well, like I said, everything that's wrong with the world seems to be that humans consume meat, dairy, fish, and eggs. And if we would just stop it, let's see what happens then. You know, let's see how, you know, the effect on war and peace and violence and uh, feeding the world and, you know, having a healthy world. And, you know, we're told by top climate specialists that the only solution for climate change is a human population shift to vegan. So... Um, that's, that seems to be, you know, the, the cause of my life. I mean, I, I, I wish I could have continued just playing music on radio stations and having a nice decadent life, but, uh, who would have known mm -hmm. that radio would become obsolete anyway? So <laughs> there, yeah. there'll be an internet in the future, so you won't be working at radio stations anymore, Bobby. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> all right. Let's, let's talk about animals and not eating them, you know? You know, another another stat on animal agriculture, um, and this goes back further, Paul Elric wrote in a book, not his main book, I think it was like Population Bomb or something like that. He has another book that came out after that. He um, says that animal agriculture accounts both the, um, the land, land mass for grazing and all that and the plant foods in order to feed them. Uh, accounts for the arable land, arable soil on both South America and Africa. Mm -hmm. So another way, like he's looking at arable land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it, it is the most environmentally destructive behavior. I mean, what's the number one cause of deforestation to graze animals or grow GMO uh, corn or soy to feed animals and water usage, water pollution, air pollution, destruction of uh, all waterways, ocean. I mean, like everything that's wrong. And if we would just look at our deep vegan origins, right, That, but we're rationalizing everything um, and, you know, selling everything. You know, you never see the animals. It's you know, everything is being sold to us with uh you know, sex or humor, and uh, and and you know, and the planet the planet dies as a result. So, um, yeah. So. 
It's intense. Yeah, yeah. But uh, okay, so um, oh, w- there was something that I saw written that, and and I must have missed it. Maybe I was working at a radio station, but it there, something was written about a 1990s debate between feminists for animal rights and deep ecology. Do you comment on that or know anything about yeah. that or? Is that um, there's a lot of my book that the theme of that debate is strewn throughout my book. And it's basically a critique of, oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot his name, Paul, somebody. Um, So Feminist for Animal Rights was really getting strong in like the 90s. And there uh, was this debate ongoing between them and deep ecology you would find it in some uh, journal articles and other essays marty keel was one of the main people and uh she ended up dying early i I forget exactly what happened with her yeah marty marty was a guest on my show too back then really yeah yeah and again it's probably pre-archive days on my website but yeah definitely Yeah. So um, there's basically uh, in deep ecology, I think some deep ecologists are more vegan and some people are of them are more hunting. And um, there's certain uh, figureheads that are they romanticize hunting and they do it in a really to me, it comes across as really sick and twisted and um, so, you know, because they're romanticizing it and they're they're also correlating it to how you can treat and win over women. Um, so, you know, Marty Kill and Farr kind of took on the issue because they were about feminism at the time. So they were linking feminism with veganism. And then you had uh, the opposite going the other way. And when all of a sudden that whole debate just died, and I think it might have correlated with um, when Marty passed. Mm. So I kind of pick it up from there. I feel like I took the torch from her and just tried to carry it further, you know. Right. Well, I, I, I can't imagine how any feminist could consume, well, any animal product, but dairy i mean it's like no yeah i mean it's uh you know it's rape kidnapping um you know the industry itself calls it a rape rack uh for the cows um you know and just you know animals who are really exploited and killed well because they're female of course the males are killed anyway too i mean nobody gets out alive but uh you know for, for egg production and all of that, I mean, I, I, I think that's a feminist argument in itself to not consume meat, dairy, did you, fish, and eggs. Did you hear that Carol Adams is updating her book, The Pornography of Meat? I, I think that that's coming out soon. Ah, okay. We'll look forward to that. In the meantime, we could read uh, Eco-Patriarchy, The Origins and Nature of Hunting, and... Um, Again, anything else you want you want to address or give us your website and information again? I just want to thank you so much for doing what you're doing and being so persistent. You know, there's so many ex-vegans nowadays, and you're like the antithesis of that. So it's really inspiring to 
talk with someone like you and just really uh, I'm so much appreciation for what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you know, vegan for 36 years now. I, I can't imagine being an ex-vegan. Um, it's, uh, well, uh, you know, it's that, that we have our deep vegan origins and that's, uh, you know, that's that's the, the, mo- the motivation right there. And um, along the way, and I really, when I started this show, which would have been in 2001, after um, having organized a vegan festival in L.A., World Fest L.A., so I was promoting World Fest L.A. on radio stations around the city, and there was a producer at KRLA, and she said, well, you have a background in broadcasting and animal rights and vegan uh, you should be doing a show. So, but we charge you, I don't know, like something outrageous, like 900 or a thousand a week. Uh, but so we, uh, we charge you for the time. So here, go call and get some advertisers and start a show. So mm-hmm. I, I did, I went out, I got the advertisers, but I thought the show would last maybe two or three weeks because, you know, the owners of the station would hear it and they go, well, we can't have that. You know, all, all of our other advertisers will complain or whatever. So I, I, th- I gave it two or three weeks. Um, maybe the owners of the station never listened. And, you know, then eventually I was, went on to the Air America radio network and I just, you know, was heard in a number of places. And um, I, I kind of made a commitment um, to the animals that I would keep this going as long as I possibly can, you know, for them. And, you know, just because, the, you know, uh, no matter how bad life ever seemed to me, and I had to live as, as you know, kind of an on-the-edge activist to, to pay for airtime. So I wound up, you know, couch surfing, and uh, I probably should have gone out to the forest for a while, but I... You know, <laughs> living on living in people's couches and whatever, just because, you know, however bad life seemed to me to be for me, it was so much worse for the animals. And they they had no escape. You know, I, I, I just have this vision in my mind of, you know, there's a chicken cowering in a cage like, you know, just on the side, you know, and, and there's, there's just no escape for them. And uh, so, uh, you know. What can I do you for them to help them escape, you know? You you have an innately compassionate heart that you're listening to and responding to. Well, um, I have always loved animals. Um, I loved reading animal stories in, in that unnatural school environment, you know. And then uh, just one night when I was in college, I looked down at the frying pan and I saw somebody's body. Um, and I said... Uh, I don't think I can eat animals anymore. And everybody <laughs> thought I was crazy. And I became the first pseudo vegetarian that I ever knew. I called myself vegetarian, but, you know, until I went vegan, uh, I, <laughs> I didn't quite have it together. But what did I know? I was uh, being self-taught at the time. And I was, uh, I was engaged uh, to a butcher's daughter. And that didn't go well in the family. And, you know, my... <laughs> <laughs> my, my future ex-mother-in-law was yelling at me you're gonna die if you eat like that you know like, oh, she's probably right but i, I you know like uh, a lot further into the future than i had imagined so 
you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we keep on keeping on for the animals. And it turns out that it's the best thing for people and the environment, too. That's what's so shocking. It's like, wow, you know, if somebody says to me, oh, you care more about animals than people, it's, well, do do the just do this for animals and look how, how it affects people, how, how, how much it benefits people and benefits the environment. So I... I who would have known the impact the you know how, how major the impact could be you know everybody saying oh we need health care for all but can't get it maybe if we go vegan you know that's that's part of the solution right there with all the money that goes into heart disease and cancer and stroke and diabetes and you know whatever and uh, much of that reversible if people check out the work of uh, Dr. Esselstyn um, it turned out the best thing uh, I, I could ever do. And I, I thought I was making a quiet little personal decision way back, you know, when. Uh, didn't imagine that, you know, I, I would be a public figure for veganism. There's, you know, I won a hamburger eating <laughs> contest when I was 16, you know, so. Oh, uh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, lives to tell about it, which is um... uh, thankful for that. And, you know, thankful for the opportunity, really, to... Uh, try to represent the animals and the vegan cause and sounds like you're pretty into it too and from a young age again you know it's fairly unusual although it happens you know it does happen where there are children who don't want to eat animals you know and they insist and their parents have to have to do something about it you know so i, I think that's yeah there's like a you could put together a montage of youtube videos on that you know, the, the parents show what their kids are, you know, demanding and they're like throwing a big fit over it. It's like they know in their heart. They just know. They, they know. And, and that just yeah, that just speaks to how innate it is. It, it is innate. And, you know, I'm thinking my mother was sending me to school with tongue sandwiches in my lunchbox like could there be you know i mean at least when it's hidden and they say oh it's a hamburger or a hot dog you know you know i'm, I'm eating a tongue sandwich like what's what's up well, with that you know or uh, well what what bar what body part is appealing to eat actually you know not when you come right down to it you know but again we rationalize that's the whole thing that's what i found so in interesting about what you're saying it's like this rationalization that goes on constantly and, and people, you know, often want to turn away. They don't want to see what happens to animals and they don't want to hear it because uh, they're they're in their comfortable, oppressive zone. You know, they, they don't, you know, they, the most oppressed among us, the most oppressed humans are not as oppressed as, as the animals whom they are eating. So, okay. yeah, so. All righty. Well, that's my spiel. <laughs> <laughs> so It's been a wonderful talk, Bob. Yeah, thank you, Ria. I really appreciate it. Again, uh, today we've been talking to Ria Del Montana. Her book is Eco-Patriarchy, The Origins and uh, Nature of Hunting. Um, and again, we explore humans' deep vegan origins. Um, so thanks for being with us today, Ria. You take care, Bob, and best of everything to you.
Okay, that will just about do it for this episode of Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. I invite you to support our program with a tax-deductible donation at GoVeganRadio.com. You can find the donate button there. We have the Patreon thing going on there also, so uh, you can support us that way. And, uh, you know, please tell your friends. They're, they're bored. They're sitting around. They're looking for something to do. Here's, uh, here's a podcast uh, that's uh, as long as, uh, as a Joe Rogan show. Um, Joe Rogan, who uh, considers himself a comedian, I don't know. Maybe maybe our show is funnier than Joe Rogan. Um, the uh, the subject matter is as interesting, and you get it from a host who doesn't go out and uh, shoot elk with a bow and arrow. So uh, all the positives here. So uh, tell your friends about Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. Again, over 600 shows are archived at goveganradio.com. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.